Welcome to Itak Dale, a podcast about Poland from Indiana University's Polish Studies Center. I'm Elizabeth Cullen Dunn, your host. My guest today is Professor Marisha Galbraith. She is professor in the New College and in the Department of Anthropology at the University of Alabama. And she's the author of a book called Being and Becoming European in Poland, which won the Bronisław Malinowski Prize in Social Sciences, awarded by the Polish Institute of Arts and Sciences. Marisha is going to tell us the fascinating story about finding an old family photograph in an envelope marked do not open. What was the photograph and why was it in that envelope? Okay, well, the photograph was in my grandmother's papers and I found it when I, it was 2011, I was back home talking with my brother about how I really wanted to find out more about our family history because I had been going to Poland for years to do my ethnographic field work even before then to try to find my family roots And at some point, I realized that if I really want to know about my family and where it comes from, I needed to poke the family secret, which was that my my mother's family had actually been Jewish in Poland. And uh, so so he, when he heard this, this, he said, you know, in Babcia, and that Babcia's grandmother in Polish, in Babcia's papers, I found this envelope that said, do not open. And there are some really amazing photographs in there. You probably want to see them. And so that's when I, of course, we opened up the envelope. And there, there was a picture of a family group, uh, probably from the early 20th century. And I could clearly see that it was a Jewish family. The patriarch of the family was uh, kind of standing straight, a very kind of noble looking gentleman with a thick white beard and the distinctive hat and black robe uh, uh, coat that distinguishes a, a religious Jew of that time period. And I was looking at the other faces and I realized this had to be my grandmother's family, which meant that this man had to be my great grandfather. And uh, it took me a long time because I wasn't even 100% sure who my grandmother was in the picture. At this point, I do know, I did figure out who was who, but that's what really got me started. Somehow having the visual image helped me to connect with the story in a way, it made it real in a way that just hearing sort of rumors and whispers while I was growing up uh, uh, hadn't. And so that's what really got me on this journey to really find out these hidden secrets of my mother's family. Uh, And this must have been more common than is uh, usually talked about because the same happened to my grandmother who (laughs) immigrated to the United States in about 1913 and, um, and also was born Jewish and changed her name and disguised the fact that she was Jewish. So there must have been these, I'm going to use the sort of Spanish word, but conversos Mm -hmm. uh, in Poland. And so it's a kind of hidden history of the Polish nation, as well as a, as a family history. Maybe tell us a little more about what Poland was like in those days in the early 20th century for Jewish people and how they fit into Polish society. 
Sure. Well, it's a complicated story because there was a, a important place for for Jews within Poland. Uh, there were opportunities for business and for uh, economic success, and my family fit into that. So my great grandfather, uh, he was a uh, um, he he. He was in the lumber business and he was a successful businessman. But also there were these board boundaries that were uncrossable. So Jews in some, some fundamental sense were not, not considered, I don't want to say not considered Polish, but they were maybe not considered fully Polish. And so I think for someone like my grandmother who had aspirations, she wanted to be a grand lady uh, she was a, an extremely vivacious and dynamic person, and she she wanted to have this life that that was separated from what she could be as a Jewish Pole. Um, and of course, also uh, she converted in the 1920s, and there's a, a whole context there. But but this was just as Poland had regained its autonomy after World War One, and initially there was this vision of a multi-ethnic, multi-religious Poland that was taking hold. But at the same time, there was a lot of bias against Poles or Jews that continued. And so to really uh, be fully a part of Polish society, it would have been difficult as a Jew. Or there, you, were, you would always be a Jewish Pole. And, um, and of course, as the, 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 the 1920s, 1930s progressed, increasingly there was more overt anti-Semitism. So uh, uh, boycotts against Jewish businesses and uh, real overt prejudice that was much more deeply impacting Jewish Poles' lives. So do you think that, that converting was also a change in social class for your grandmother? Did it, did it I mean, change her economic position in Polish society? It did for a range of reasons. I'm, uh, because she, like I said, she, she, her family was pretty, pretty comfortable uh, even before. Uh, but yeah, there was certainly a, a leap of social class, I think. And of course, uh, for her, there, she had aspirations. So she married, she was married to a Jewish, she had a Jewish husband first who yeah, was also I, a successful businessman. And one of the reasons why, and I'm, I'm putting in a lot of pieces here that I've built and built up and figured out over the years. Um, so she, I think part of the reason why she married her first husband was because he was from Warsaw. And so there were a lot more opportunities for, for people um, generally, but for Jews as well in Warsaw, there was more of a kind of integrated elite society within Warsaw. But when she met and fell in love with the man, the Catholic man who became her second husband, it really was a leap where he, was an, he wasn't just a successful businessman, he was an extremely successful businessman. And so for her, that leap to that second marriage was very much a, a shift in class. So your grandmother's name was Halina, right? Yes. Um, so that's my middle name too. It's your middle name. Yeah. yeah that's um, so you have a, a sort of an a Polish Jewish Irish uh, conglomeration. <laughs> um, so uh, when so Halina's first marriage, you write, was an arranged marriage to a man much older than she was. Do you have any sense of sort of the emotional tenor of that marriage? Did she love him? Did she like him? 
Well, I've since I've since learned that her, I don't think that her first husband was that much older than her. There's a difference between the story that I was told in whispers versus the archival evidence I found of my my grandmother's first husband. So she he was a few years older, but not that much. Um, I I get the sense that yeah, she was kind of um, finally giving in to the pressure of her father to just settle down. And I don't believe that she had strong feelings for her first husband. I, um, from everything I've heard, they were not very compatible emotionally and sort of psychologically. My, like I said, my grandmother was, she was charming and dramatic and she wanted to have this rich, full life. And I think that he was a much more sort of pragmatic, sort of traditional down to earth kind of guy. So I don't think that they connected on that level. Stodgy even. Maybe. Maybe. Stodgy. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. yeah. And because you can see in the picture of her that she's quite a lively person. In the picture that you show uh, where she's with her family, she's sort of holding someone's hand um, in this sort of active connection, which you can really read through the photograph. Yes. Yeah. That's, that's her mother. Mm -hmm. That's her mother. Yeah. Yeah. So she, so she, so she gets sent off to Warsaw to marry this man who she's not in love with. And do you know how she, I mean, you say in a very sort of wry way um, that they uh, left their spouses and ran off together, but maybe it happened the other way around. Um, <laughs> I have no evidence, no yes. evidence of that. And I think that probably, I mean, my grandmother's probably already rolling over in her grave that I tell this story, but I think if I were to take it that far, it would be even worse. <laughs> yeah. So, so, but do you, do you have any knowledge of how she met this man? And uh, I mean, divorce in that era was not common. No. Well, it was more common among Jews, but um, even then, absolutely. The story that has been told in many versions in the family is that my grandmother was on a train. And in some versions of the story, she was running away from her first husband at the time, that she was just fed up and running away. And this is something my grandmother did for all her whole life. She would run away every 10 years or so and start over. And she met a man who was Zygmunt Bereda, who was, who swept her off her feet and they had this lovely connection. And as he was leaving the train, he said, well, there are different versions, but the one that I like the best is, I see you weeping on my grave. In other Poetic. words, yes, he was, he was, saw that it was destiny that they would be together. And she went off and went to spend some time with supposedly some family friends until she got ready, I guess, to go back to her husband. But in the meantime, this, as the story goes, he figured out who she was and proceeded to uh, finagle connections with the people she was staying with or in other versions actually chummed up to her husband to somehow find a way to reconnect with her. And then the rest was, I guess, my history because they ran off together. Yeah, destiny in some sense. Yeah, that's that was always the story, the version I was told, that it was this love at first sight, it was irrepressible, and it just pushed them in this new direction. So yeah. it, it's a really interesting way to think about, I mean, 
this is both a personal story, the story of a woman who falls in love with a man um, who's not of her social group. But it's also very much a, a story about larger social formations, that here is a Jewish woman who has her life bounded and limited by her position in society and decides to radically switch her position in the society yeah. that she lives in. And in order to do that, I mean, it looks like two things had to happen. One was conversion and the other was secrecy. Yeah. So maybe you can tell me a little bit about what you think conversion meant to a woman in the 1920s. What, what would it have changed about her life? That's a great question. And, and thinking of it in those terms, I think is really fantastic. Um, for her, for in the context in which she had been raised in a, a, a very religious family with a very religious father, conversion essentially meant giving up your family. And so uh, for my great grandfather's, from my grand, grand, great, great grandfather's perspective, from that point, my grandmother was dead. And he sat Shiva, essentially, which is what you do when somebody dies. And he never acknowledged her again from that time. Uh, but also there was the cultural side of it, which was that in Polish society, if she wanted to be fully recognized as the legitimate husband, a wife, let's say, of this, this, this successful man, she had to push aside and, 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 and not acknowledge her Jewish heritage. She had to really invent a Catholic past that um, would be considered more legitimate or, yeah. Do you, do you know anything about her lying about her past? Did she make up an origin story that mm -hmm. ended up not being true? Yeah, um, and I only know pieces of this, but it, it was further complicated because she had already, already had two kids with her first husband. And Very she basically erased, she erased her first husband from her new story. So my mother and my uncle got false birth certificates with a different, my, my, with my grandmother's maiden name as a different name and a different birthplace. So whereas they had been born in Warsaw, these new documents had them born in Vilna or, or, or Vilnius, where it would be harder to trace. In those times, you didn't have the internet, so you couldn't just check these things so easily. And so she had these documents that were from a different city, which was a Polish city at the time, but still um, that would break that line from the past. Wow, uh, I, I was just shocked by this little detail because of course the story I've always heard is that my grandmother was born in Vilnius. <laughs> and so um, now I have to wonder where she was really born. Where did she really start out? And, and then eventually my grandmother also and her, all of her siblings got birth certificates that said that they were born in New York. So even though they um, were born in Poland, even though they were born in Poland uh, huh. she, she retained both birth certificates and never knew her real age. So when yeah. she died, we didn't know her real age. She was 78 or 80, who knows? Mm -hmm. um, and she herself never actually knew, which is amazing that you could be a child when that is so significant and yeah. not know if you're eight or 10. I mean, that's a pretty big difference, but um, yeah. And, and that was part of a family story that had to be not just not spoken about, but actively covered up. Yeah. So 
Um, and, and here you're talking about also an active cover up. Surely her second husband knew the truth though, right? Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he was, he was a participant of- in the cover up. Mm-hmm. But what effect do you think secrecy had on her and on the family? You, you know, one of the things you write eloquently about, you say, learning about my family's heritage is complicated because I'm delving into things my mother, that is Helena's daughter, I'm delving into things my mother invested a tremendous amount of energy into keeping secret. Mm-hmm. Why did your mom sink so much energy into keeping this secret? And what do you think the effect of that was on your family as a whole? Yeah, well, the, the, the secrecy of my mom is much easier for me to talk about than that of my grandmother, because I really don't have a better, I don't have as good a sense of why my grandmother wanted to keep it secret. Um, of course, I knew, knew my mother better. And uh, for her, she didn't remember her Jewish father. She didn't remember being born Jewish. She was raised in this this Catholic Polish elite atmosphere where uh, it was not considered a good thing to be Jewish. I mean, even though there were Jewish people around because my, my, my grandparents had a kind of salon in the house. So there was a constantly rotating artists and um, uh, coming through of all ethnicities and religions. And, um, so she had that kind of exposure, but at the same time, for her, it was really important to be fully Polish uh, to the extent that she was a passionate Polish patriot. And she was deeply religious. So she was, she, she didn't just put on the form of Catholicism. She became a very, um, very devout. At one point she wanted to be a nun. <laughs> so uh, for her, it was shameful. It was shameful to have this heritage. And so that was a lot of the, that was so bound up. She, she, she built up a sense of herself, but also who she wanted to be that didn't allow for a Jewish heritage. The Jewish heritage challenged this vision of what she wanted to be. And I think that's why she invested so much in keeping it secret. And that doesn't even talk about what happened during World War II, where having Jewish heritage was a death sentence. So during the war, of course, had this truth come out, she would not have survived. Yeah, and and that adds a whole nother layer of trauma and intensity to holding on to the secret. Absolutely, and I wanted to ask you about that because, um, because it becomes important with her siblings. So just to make sure, your mom then was one of the two children from your grandmother's first marriage. Correct. Right. And then we find out later that um, during World War II, her sister, who must have been the other child from that marriage, was deported to the Warsaw Ghetto. It was, it was my grandmother's sister. Sorry, your grandmother's, grandmother's sister. sister. Right. Okay. Right. So you're uh, wrong generation. So your <laughs> grandmother actually, who then had cut off ties to her family Mm -hmm. and had renounced her own Jewishness and kept it a secret, found out that her sister had been deported to the Warsaw Ghetto, Mm -hmm. which eventually would have been a death sentence for her. Right. So, but it wasn't. So maybe you can tell the story of of what Mm -hmm. happened there. Yeah. And, and 
But let me just say that the the official story that I was told was that my grandmother had cut off, been, been cut off and cut off completely from her family. I don't think it was that extreme. And the more I meet up with and learn the family story and meet cousins across the world, I think that there was more contact than that. Um, but yeah, my, my, my grandmother's sister, Rachel, uh, was in the Warsaw ghetto initially with her husband and with her youngest child, a daughter who was actually younger, a little bit younger than my mom. So, uh, she was born in 1924. And, uh, when my grandmother found out about the family in the, the ghetto, she helped to get them out. And so, and I've learned this from cousins and descendants of the people who actually managed to get out that it, I think it started with, there was a, a young boy who was Rachel's grandson. And she, my grandmother arranged so that he would pass through, there was one building apparently, it was some sort of administrative building that some days of the week it would be open to the Polish side and other times to the ghetto side. And somehow they figured out a way to get him through that building. And she was waiting for him on the other side. He was a young boy at the time. So that was the first one. And then she managed to get Rachel out and also Rachel's daughter, Mirka. So there were the three of them in the family that she managed to get out and then help them to get false papers so that they, they got identity papers that would say that they were Catholic Poles. And that allowed them to live outside the ghetto. So they lived through the war. They didn't leave Poland. They just survived the war under assumed identities. Exactly. And my grandmother had one more sister that actually did that as well. And and what happened then? So you you don't have any evidence about how she got, how Helena got Rachel out or what, did they have contact while she was in hiding under this assumed identity? What happened to the two sisters after that? Uh, the, the, there must have been contact uh, because after the war, there are these, there are the, there's a record of Jews who survived the war. And I actually found both my mother and my grandmother and my, my grandmother's second husband, who was not Jewish, on that list, as well as Rachel, so my grandmother's sister, and uh, some of the other relatives. And the other thing that I found from the, that documentation is that after the war, my, my branch of the family actually lived with Rachel's branch of the family. And this is probably because most, essentially my grandmother lost everything during the war. Warsaw was bombed to the ground. So whatever property she had, whatever homes she had were completely destroyed. But because Rachel's Rachel's side of the family, they had some property on the other side of the river in a Jewish neighborhood that had not been bombed as much. My family lived with them. So I, so yeah, so there's a kind of interesting reversal here where my grandmother seems to have saved Rachel and her side of the family. And then after the war, they provided shelter for my mother and my grandmother. So it is much more complex and intertwined than it would uh -huh. look from the beginning. I want to I, I, I want to circle back to this question of what happened after the war in just a minute. But as you were talking, I was just really struck by this question of what assimilation meant for 
for Jews in the early 20th century. And I, I keep thinking late 19th, early 20th century. And I keep thinking uh, of Hannah Arendt's first book, Rahel Varnhagen, which is the story of a Jewish woman who wants to become part of German society and holds all these you know, salons and becomes deeply involved with the intellectuals of the period and is, is well known in German society. And then the Nazi regime comes to power and it doesn't save Rahel Varnhagen. No, no matter how hard she tried to assimilate, when push came to shove, they wouldn't let her assimilate. Yes. That it was impossible to successfully change your identity, no matter no matter how hard you tried. And this is a story that Hannah Arendt tells over and over. She tells it again in a different form in an essay called We Refugees, where mm -hmm. she says the refugees always trying to become a part of the society they're in and they never really make it. They're always a foreigner. Do you think that that was true of your grandmother at a certain point that she was always an outsider to Polish society? Or do you think that she did successfully assimilate? I think she always, I think she did successfully assimilate and I'm not hundred percent sure how she managed to do that. Um, but being able to successfully assimilate doesn't mean that she entirely was personally in her own mind fully accepted. So uh, I think that she was always, always needed to put on the, the performance of being an assimilated Catholic, deeply Catholic Polish woman. Um, but she must have been successful because she survived. Okay. And it's even more mystifying to me because I've found evidence showing that it was kind of, in, at least in some places, it was known, this, this complicated history, that she had been born Jewish and converted at, and was known, and that she had remarried, all of this. So uh, with this as, I mean, there were people who could have, uh, to put it bluntly, could have informed on her. And for whatever reason, if they did, it didn't, it didn't lead to her, her demise. <laughs> or uh, maybe they didn't, I don't know. Yeah, I, I think of this too, because my grandmother, after she became Episcopalian, um, was profoundly and virulently anti-Semitic. Mm -hmm. um, she was also anti-Black and anti-Italian. And <laughs> if she couldn't hate you as part of a large ethnic group, would just hate you personally. Um, the most misanthropic person I've ever met. But wow. in a way that misanthropy and that bigotry was a form of protective coloration, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, how could you be a Jew if you were an anti-Semite? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you have to wonder how much of that was a sort of common affective or social response, common emotional yeah. response to having to hide such a profound secret about yeah. who you are. Yeah, and I don't think I don't think that my grandmother was an anti-Semite in the sense that you're talking about. She was an elitist. She was a I, I, well, I don't want to say snob. She was an elitist, okay. And she had very strong sentiments about um, people who she saw as commoners, okay. And so she would make a distinction between the elite Jews who were in her house, who were the artists, and the conservative traditional Jews who were out at the market with their long beards and their long coats. Like ironically, her father would still wear, even though he was, he was wealthy himself. 
so there was in, in a way kind of an, an intersectional um, mm-hmm. kind of of elitism that blended ethnicity and class yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, surprisingly yeah my grandmother also was was a, a deep down waspy snob and um, <laughs> by god if you got a gift you were gonna write back a thank you letter on an engraved correspondence card or pay <laughs> so um so I think that that kind of class snobbery is also a very common response to secrecy about yeah. origins and I think that her um her elite status is is was highly instrumental in saving her life that um that she was seen as a gracious lady or I that her more bluntly I think her husband her second husband was able to buy her her lot her security and what kind of evidence leads you to think that uh it's very sketchy um stories family stories um well, there's, there's some wonderful family stories about my grandmother's encounters with the Nazis. <laughs> so maybe uh, I'll say, uh, first to answer your question, uh, I think that my grandmother's second husband had uh, connections with Nazis related to business that allowed him to bribe important people to save my grandmother. That's 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 the, that's the most likely. Um, my grandmother's inner encounters with the Nazis. She was a grand lady. She was extremely just noble in her carriage, um, perfect manners, perfect perfect Polish. And that was another thing that a lot of people of Jewish origin had trouble assimilating because they spoke. They had an accent. My grandmother did not. She could speak perfect Polish, and so the Nazis, some Nazis came to her villa to basically pull art off the wall, choose whatever they wanted. And she was perfect manner, perfectly mannered about the whole thing. So she just sort of provided them with tea as they basically stripped the walls of her house. Um, there's actually a better story. Let me see if I can formulate it in my mind. It's skipping my mind, so I can't tell it. Sorry. That's okay. Yeah. No. It's it's oh, just to me. <laughs> it, it's it's in a way so much the story of protective coloration, but also kind of a deep seated trauma that um, that women like your grandmother and mine must have endured. And your brother, you quote your brother in your blog, and you say that he believes that your grandmother and maybe your mother suffered from some kind of PTSD, that, that it was mm-hmm. transmitted to the children generation after generation. It could be. Yeah, I've, I've read um, about post-memory and it really resonates, so. Yeah, what, what makes yeah. your brother, what do you think made your brother say that? <sighs> well, we grew up in suburban Long Island, very sort of, middle class, um, and my mother was clearly quite different, okay? She had an accent. She was very shy. She wasn't social in the way that in my Italian slash Jewish, interestingly enough, Catholic Irish neighborhood um, was was not typical. Uh, she, She had a lot of fears, and so I, so we grew up in this environment where, um, 
yeah, I think we, 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 we somehow absorbed her fears. It's like a social fear. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it was complicated as well because she, she was injured in the war and had facial scars that um, for a shy woman who was very self-conscious just added another layer of social fear. And so, uh, yeah. And, and yet she would do these extraordinary things. You tell this great story of the neighbor coming out to say that your mother had been riding a horse down the street. <laughs> <laughs> this is one of those weird memories that I just, I, 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 I remember, remember it, but I can't believe it's true, you know? Yeah. So uh, yeah, she, well, she, as a child, she had a pony, which was called uh, Daisy, uh, Dolly, Drip Stops and Dolly. Drips, drops, and dolly. Yeah. Okay. Were the three ponies? They're ponies. Yeah. And um, so she grew up riding horses, probably hadn't for 30 years. And then one day I came home from school and yeah, the neighbor had had a horse for some reason. And so my grandma, my mother just drove, rode it up and down the street. (laughs) In suburban Long Island. So how did your mother make it, your grandmother make it to the United States? How did Helena make it to the United States? She came with my mother after the war and it, my uh, step-grandfather actually survived the war and they were just building up, rebuilding up their businesses, reclaiming their businesses when uh, uh, he died of a heart attack, end of 1945, leaving my grandmother again, trying to sort of sort out uh, what was still able to be salvaged of the family's businesses. Um, but then the, it became clear that state socialism, communism was going to take over in Poland and being a private business person was not really a great prospect, as well as the fact that my mother had been part of the Polish underground army and people who had been in the Polish underground were being persecuted at the, by this incoming government. And so it became very clear they didn't have a future in Poland. So by 1946, at this point, both of my um, uncles were outside of the United States, outside of Poland in uh, England. And so they arranged to, to leave. Um, I believe the, the, the family story is that they went to, for my, grand, my mother to get surgery because of her facial inju- injuries. Uh, and I have found... Uh, uh, Red Cross documents that do suggest that she got some sort of departure visa for that purpose. Um, and that's how they left. They left together. And so she, my grandmother came, left as the guardian or the protector of my companion of my, my sick mother. Wow. And so her sister, Rachel, though, had a very different post-war experience. And maybe you can tell us a little bit about how you found out what happened to Rachel and then what happened? <laughs> well, when I was, when I, once I saw the photograph and I had to know the family history, I, I spent many long nights uh, searching the internet and I came across one of those nights, I came across a family tree on my heritage that looked like my mother, my grandmother's family. The names weren't exactly the same and not everybody was quite there in the same position and birth dates were different, but it was enough information that I felt like it was my family. And so I wrote to the person who owned that family tree. And that turned out to be my cousin, Pini, who is Rachel's grandson. And he lives in Israel 
And so we had an exchange where at first he was quite suspicious because apparently he has this big tree and lots of people contact him all the time. But uh, he, he kind of, he, he's a very direct person. And so, so essentially what he was saying is, uh, I'm happy to hear from you, but prove it. <laughs> he wanted proof. Um, and so I sent him the photograph, the photograph that we started out talking about. And he writes back saying, I have the same photograph. Welcome to the family. Wow. So profound that he gets sent a photograph, a copy of a photograph in his own possession mm -hmm. and finds out that, yeah, you're cousins. Exactly. And since then, I've met several other cousins who are descended from other individuals within that photograph because it turned out to be my great-grandfather, my great-grandmother, and then I believe six of their children and one of their grandchildren. And wow. so, so for whatever reason, when that photograph was taken, it was distributed to all of the descendants on three continents in the United States, in Europe, and in Israel. So, so what was it like for you to have a reconnection to Jewish family? It was, it was extraordinary. I, it really was. I mean, and I think it also helps that uh, Peeney is the kind of person that he is. He's just so oriented towards family. He's so warm. He's so matter of fact that once I was family, I'm family. And we still, I mean, we, we contact each other pretty much weekly, maybe a couple times a month, if not. And so we're, we're constantly in touch about this or that. And um, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a kind of rooting process that you don't very often get to experience, this sense of who you are in a larger global context. Exactly. So how did Rachel get to Israel? She, after the war... Uh, she basically went back to the town that she had been living in, which is Warsawic, which is a, a smaller city northwest of Warsaw, and basically just uh, tied up the family interests there. And at that point, already three, three of her sons were living in Israel because her husband um, had had the prescience to realize that perhaps the family's future was in Israel rather than in Poland. And so they had left in the 1930s and, and, and started out their lives there. So, so they were she, Zionists. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So Pini's grandfather was part of the Mizrahi party, which was a kind of religious Zionist party. Um, one of my grandmother's brothers was a Zionist, actually. He actually represented the Zionists in Botswavik government, so. Wow, that, that's just a, a phenomenal story of this diaspora around the planet and yeah. the ways that, that new technologies actually have changed our whole sense of ourselves as beings and of histories. You, mm -hmm. you say that you know, the internet was a big factor in all of this. Did you, did you do any of those DNA tests either? Was that a way of linking to people? I did, uh, though uh, the... I didn't really connect with my grandmother's family through DNA because I met them in other ways, but I have found a second cousin on my grandfather's side. So this is the biological grandfather who I know almost nothing about, but I do know that he had a brother who went to England and started a family there. And so one of, one of this brother's grandsons I have met through DNA. 
Wow. That's, that's amazing. Yeah. So, so it really is transformative in, in your sense of self because you never would have found this is Helena's first husband's right. other children. Right. So, so you're finding a whole nother side of the family that you would have been lost to you otherwise. Right. It was his brother's family, but yeah. 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 So, so tell me, um, just as we wrap up, you know, a lot of your work has been about Polish nationalism and, and increasingly about very exclusionary uh, Polish nationalism, very biologized Polish nationalism. Mm -hmm. How has your story fit into your larger intellectual project? Well, in some ways it's, it's, it's separate because I, I've, I've shifted to looking at um, Jewish heritage in Poland. So I've been doing a study of Jewish heritage projects where, where local people in smaller cities and towns are seeking to bring, I call it, um, bring into the public sphere the culture and history of Jews who formerly lived there. Uh, and I guess the nationalism is fitting in because when I started this research in 2014 and 2015, this was a ex really exciting time for this kind of work. There was just this bubbling of energy and enthusiasm and it was spreading and there was, there was, there, there was becoming more public and um, the Pauline Museum, so the, po the, Polish, the Museum of the History of Polish Jews was just opening in Warsaw, this incredible museum documenting a thousand years of Jewish history. So it was a moment when Poland as a nation, both publicly, but also people in their everyday lives were starting to embrace the fact that this had been the homeland of Jews for a very long time. Um, and then as um, this populist surge has occurred in Poland, it's becoming harder and harder to do this work. And so that's kind of where it's all sort of starting this fit together again. And I'm still struggling with how to deal with that. And I think it's, it's, it's a very personal thing, which is it's not the story I wanna tell. Mm -hmm. When I started out this research, I wanted to tell this sort of hopeful story of this kind of um, uh, uh, resolution of this age old conflict between Poles and Jews and um, a Polish heritage or Polish history and Jewish history. And that's not the story I have to tell right now. So it's, it's a difficult moment actually. Extraordinarily difficult because you're also telling the story of, of dangerous happenings happening again in, in yeah. the of if, biologized if say, viewpoints. Yeah. And if I could just say, I mean, from my personal perspective, I feel a deep connection to Poland and Polish culture. I mean, I was raised by a Polish patriot. And so my connection with Jewish heritage has come later <laughs> and it doesn't cancel out my, I love Poland. I love my Polish friends. I love being there. I feel like when I go there, I reconnect with myself, a part of myself that is different from who I am when I'm in the United States. Um, so it's so important to me, this Polishness that I connect with. And yet it's just so complicated to also feel this sense of, I feel a sense of loss really. So with, this is very personal, but with this, um, this, this particular moment, um, I thought that we were at a time where I didn't have to choose, but in some, on some level and for some people, I would still have to choose. It's like, okay, you can choose. You can feel connected to this Polishness or you can accept or recognize this sort of Jewish heritage. And I can't choose because it's all, it, like if I were to choose, I would be falling into the same 
uh, trap that my mother did, which is that she had to deny a certain part of herself in order to be the person she wanted to be. And I, I just can't do that. Okay. So, yeah, that's, that's profoundly moving. And, and it speaks so much to how personal and how close to the heart these political debates really are. Marisha Galbraith, thank you so much for joining us. I want to send people listening to your amazing blog about this whole story, uh, which is www.uncoveringjewishheritage.com. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you.